Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just again, for the record, did you ever have sex with Helen Nardi? No, I did not. Even like way before Never. this? Okay. Never. And did you kill Helen Nardi? No, I did not. Have you ever killed anybody? No, sir. I'm Florida Today news columnist John A. Torres, and this is Murder on the Space Coast, a six-part podcast focusing on one of Brevard County's most troubling murder cases. Before we get started, just a warning. Murder on the Space Coast is, well, it's about a murder, and things can get pretty graphic. It may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. To get things started, I'd like to ask you a simple question. What have you touched so far today? I mean everything. Your pillow? blanket, a coffee mug, keys, shoelaces, whatever. Where have you absentmindedly left your palm or fingerprints? I asked a few people in the newsroom to see if they could. If I asked you to, would you be able to list every single thing that you've touched so far today? No. Could you run down a few of the things that you do remember? Okay, well I touched my toothbrush, touched my hairbrush, touched coffee cups, some dishes this morning in the kitchen. I touched my shoes, my clothes, lots of various makeup things. So many door handles. I've, I've been everywhere. <laughs> so so it would be pretty tough then for you to remember or explain why your fingerprint or palm print ended up somewhere two days ago. Yeah, probably. I mean, I could probably tell you I had been somewhere and it would make sense for it to be, but I wouldn't specifically be able to explain, you know, something that I had touched and why. Everything that I've touched? Yep. Uh, try. Cell phone, iPad, eyes, uh, toothbrush, toothpaste. That just is like the first five minutes. Okay, Rob, enough. We get it. And you get the picture of what I'm trying to get at. And that right there is at the crux of the case featured on Murder on the Space Coast. It's an old case, and the person convicted by a jury, the person labeled the murderer, has spent the last 33 years in prison. And that person is still there today. But I'll be honest, I'm not sure the police and the court and the jury were right. I'm not sure that the person that has been convicted of murder actually did it. So on the heels of the hit Netflix program, Making a Murderer, and the wildly popular podcast, Serial, This American Life, we decided to take a similar tact, a deep dive, if you will, into this case. It's bothered me for a while now. As the former courts reporter and now the news columnist, I've written about this case before, and in particular, how eerily similar it seemed to other local cases where innocent men spent years and years in prison for murder and rape. These men were eventually freed after being found innocent. They had been convicted on false evidence. The police and the courts and the jury got it wrong in those cases. Could they have also gotten it wrong in other cases? like the one I'm going to be telling you about over the next six weeks. Now listen, and this is pretty important. We decided to tell the story a little differently. 
Five of the six episodes in this podcast series are written and recorded and will be released one a week starting today. But as you listen, you'll notice that you're coming with me as I report this. What does that mean? It means that there are some surprises coming, some details I discovered that, well, I'll be honest, made me question some things. You'll see. Throughout the course of this, I've interviewed numerous people involved with or who had knowledge of this case. I read the entire trial transcript, preliminary reports, the appeals, the jail report, the medical records, and even handwritten notes that were in the case file. I traveled to Chipley, Florida to interview the person who has spent 33 years in prison for this. I even convinced a retired profiler to assess the case and a local lawyer to address some of the questions I had about the trial. And now, just one more thing before we get to the story. And this is important, too. The sixth and final podcast we'll tape at the end. Why? Because sometimes in telling a story, new details or tips emerge. Something might jog your memory. Or you might ask a question that leads us somewhere new. So that's where I'm counting on you. Now, with that in mind, our tale begins in July 1983 in a tiny trailer park in easternmost Palm Bay, Florida, right off of US-1, and really just a stone's throw from the Indian River and the Intracoastal Waterway. It was a quiet area then, and remains one today. And that's one of the reasons why Helen Nardi's murder was so shocking. It was as grisly a crime as Pompey had ever seen to that point. Blood was everywhere. Helen Nardi, 55, was lying in a pool of blood on the floor inside her mobile home. Blood had seeped down into the worn carpet beneath her. At least four weapons, a knife, a screwdriver, scissors, and an ice pick were used to kill Helen. The killer, or killers, left the broken off handles of the knife and ice pick in a cup of water in the kitchen sink. A screwdriver was left on the bed. Scissors were crammed in Helen's chest, and the ice pick was lodged so deeply in the woman's spine that vice grips were needed to extract it. So here's what the rest of the crime scene looked like. There was a fair amount of blood on the ceiling and on the walls. There was a blood-soaked towel on top of the bed. Glass from a broken Coca-Cola bottle littered the floor. 23 pieces of glass to be exact. A sheet was covering Helen's face and there were abrasions on her knees. When the lead detective tried to move her, he noted that rigor mortis had started to take hold. The grisly scene was made even more curious by the fact that Helen's head was partially lying inside of a yellow bucket. A television was on in the other room. A small white and blue fan lay on the floor by her feet. An autopsy would later reveal that Helen Nardi had undigested potato chips in her stomach and traces of semen in her mouth and vagina. In all, she had been stabbed a total of 26 times, 11 in the back. Whoever did this wanted to make sure that Helen Nardi was dead. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a crime of passion. It was a violent crime. Uh, very violent. I mean, she'd been stabbed multiple times, and there's just blood all over the place. That was retired Lieutenant Richard Adams of the Palm Bay Police, who at the time of Helen's murder, 33 years ago, was overseeing the Major Crimes Division, meaning while he wasn't the lead detective in the case, he was the supervising officer. And he's the only cop who went to the crime scene who is, you know, still around and willing to talk to me. So who killed Helen Nardi? Well... Before we look at that, I think it's important to try and understand who she was and why her mysterious and violent death would produce no shortage of potential suspects. 
We know that at the time of her death, she was 55. We know her daughter called her Mole. We know from case records that she rarely bathed and often wore the same clothes. We also know that her husband was murdered five years earlier in an unrelated incident. We know from court documents that Helen and her husband would, and this is not easy to say, but Helen and her husband would regularly loan their young children out for sex in exchange for rent considerations. Yeah, I know. Gross. We'll get more into that in a bit as the snapshot of Helen's sordid life expands. But for the time being, let's go back to that sultry, humid evening where the mercury hovered around 88 for most of the night and when responding police officer Jeff Smith was concerned primarily with securing the crime scene inside the trailer at lot number four at the Fitzsimmons Trailer Park near US-1 and Palm Bay Road. It was July 13, 1983, and just a few days earlier, Fred Lynn of the Angels had just hit the first Grand Slam in baseball's All-Star Game history. And it would still be a few weeks before umpires called George Brett out after hitting a home run in that now infamous Pine Tar game. The trailer park is long gone. I took a drive out there to see what it was like. Okay, well, I'm at the site on, uh, on Palm Bay Road, right near US-1, where the old Fitzsimmons trailer park used to be. And it's nothing but just an overgrown lot uh, with some pretty impressive palm trees, lots of Brazilian pepper trees, and just some uh, overgrown weeds. There's a little pathway into the woods, like maybe uh, some homeless people might have set up camp in there or something, but uh, it's really, really thick and really overgrown. But uh, it was here on this site that uh, Helen Nardi lost her life, brutally murdered. That July day in 1983, before the overgrown brush had taken over the land, it was just another lazy summer day. The temperature reached 90 in the afternoon with only three mile an hour winds. The humidity made it almost intolerable to be outdoors if you weren't by the beach or in a swimming pool. Everything seemed normal that day at the trailer park where just about everyone knew each other. Normal, that is, until Mary Nardi started knocking on doors asking neighbors if they had seen her mother. It was still hours before Helen was due at Mary's house for dinner, yet for some reason, Mary was worried. Mary lived exactly 318 feet from her mother in trailer number 52, and their daily routine was, well, just that, routine. Helen would go to Mary's for dinner every evening, and then to an 87-year-old friend's house to watch Tic Tac Doe before going home around midnight. On the surface, it all seemed kind of normal, but the family dynamics were not always friendly or normal. Occasionally, Mary and her mother, Helen Nardi, argued. And when they did, Helen would refuse to answer the door, and the two wouldn't speak for days. But they had no argument this time, or so it appears. Mary and her husband, Kermit Parkins, handled Helen's money and would give her a $20 allowance every Monday, according to the trial transcripts. It's unclear if that was ever a source of tension. Kermit himself would later testify that he went to Helen's trailer a couple of times that day as well to see if she was going to come over for dinner. That in itself seems a little bit strange 
since Helen always went to Kermit and Mary's for dinner. Kermit also said Helen's door was locked, though he admitted on the stand that he never tried the door handle. Anyway, unable to find her or get her to answer her door, Mary decided to let herself into her mom's trailer to look. So a little after four in the afternoon, Mary used the key to the trunk of her car to jiggle her mother's door open. The cheap lock, it seemed, could be opened with just about any type of key. Her little boy, Kermit Lee, only seven, was with her. They both entered the trailer and saw that the television was on, and Helen's trailer was a mess as usual. Clothes were everywhere, nail clippings and dried skin peeled from Helen Nardi's feet were in the ashtrays. Yeah, um, you heard that right. Dried skin peeled from her feet. Apparently, she had athlete's foot, and like I said earlier, Helen wasn't really known for her hygiene. In fact, her daughter Mary and her husband Kermit would sometimes have to tell her to bathe and change her clothes. Mary would later tell police that she could see her mother's legs on the ground beside her bed, and that was when she told her son to leave the trailer, run home, and tell Kermit that Helen was dead. He called police. It wasn't long before the yellow crime scene tape and a crowd of onlookers had gathered outside unit number four. That was about the same time that neighbor and acquaintance, 25-year-old unemployed Gary Bennett, who once worked as a non-union extra in Hollywood, and his family drove by on their way to the hospital to visit Gary's brother, who had suffered a workplace accident. We had gotten a phone call that my stepbrother, Lee Jones, uh, Walter Lee Jones, he uh, did roof work, that he got a nail shoved up his knee. So he was in the hospital having surgery. So we were going to the hospital and we saw a bunch of police cars down by the uh, Magic Market. And we didn't think anything about it. When we came back, we saw the police cars were still there. Well, we heard about 10 o'clock that night on the new Channel 44 News at 10 o'clock that Helen had been killed. My stepmother said, uh, my nickname is Peewee. Right. And I'm known, known to the whole family as Pee Wee. Said, Pee Wee, would you please go down there and find out what happened? So I walked down to the, all the way down to there and I asked around to ask what was going on, what had happened. They said that uh, Helen had been stabbed to death. I walked over to the store. I talked with William. A uh, police officer walked over there and started talking to us over there. And then he walked back. And then I went back and told my stepmom exactly what had happened. What was Helen like? Because uh, in reading some of the stuff, it sounds like she wasn't too hygienic. All right. Was Number she good one. Was she I, no. I, I was only 26 years old. Now, I admit, I'm like the next 26 year old back then. If it was young and it was cute, I tried to have sex with yeah. it. Okay? I'm right. like, I would like the next guy. But Helen looked like an, she was 55 years old. She looked like an old drunkard. And she was nasty. She was nasty. I wouldn't have had sex with her with somebody else's thingamajig. No, she wasn't much to look at. And Gary was, well, he was a very good-looking man. He had penetrating eyes, wavy brown hair, and appeared very fit. And I'm not making this up. I showed his photo to my editor, and she said he was very good-looking. I think she may have also used the word cute, but I can't be sure. But if Gary wasn't having sex with Helen, then who was? After all, 
Helen was found with high levels of acid phosphatase in her mouth and vagina, which are indications of sexual activity with a male. She had been spending a lot of time with neighbor Charlie Slack. In fact, he told police they were engaged. But Slack was in his late 80s and had suffered a stroke. He was pretty feeble. Helen would go to his trailer almost every night to watch TV before going to bed. She was, however, having sex with someone else who lived close by, Kermit Parkins. Yeah, that guy, Kermit Parkins, her son-in-law. Like I said, to an outsider, the family seemed normal. That is, until you started peeling back the layers that are visible to the public. And here's yet another twist. Helen Nardi was 55, and not only was her sexual partner Kermit Parkins her son-in-law, but he was 65 years old. Her son-in-law, 10 years older than her. It gets even uglier if you can believe it. Like I touched on earlier, according to court documents, two of Helen's children had been taken away and put up for adoption several years earlier because she and her husband would loan out their daughters to the landlord where they lived at that time for sex in exchange for rent. Yeah, that's right. She pimped out her own children, her own young children. But when the state came to take away Mary, who was only 16, she allowed the young girl to marry Kermit Parkins to prevent them from taking her away as well. At the time, the teenage bride's husband was 53 years old. So this is the family. Helen Nardi, her son-in-law, who was also her lover and 10 years older than she is, her daughter, and her grandson. Not exactly a picture of the all-American family. And that's the kind of information that former Florida Department of Law Enforcement agent and certified profiler Tom Davis said is vital to know over the course of that investigation. The victimology, uh, our philosophy from the behavioral side, from the crime uh, analytical side, is that uh, when you have a homicide uh, case, there's only uh, one person there uh, that was involved, and that would be the victim. So, personally, I think the victimology is paramount at the beginning. Uh, that's to say, uh, we need to know what that person ate, who that person saw, how did that person dress for bed, uh, how did that person dress during the day, uh, what did they drive, who did they call, intricate details. Also, it was likely that Helen knew her killer, as there were no signs of a forced entry, and her daughter Mary told police that her mother never would have allowed a stranger to enter her house so late at night. And maybe killing was not what the murderer had in mind. Tom Davis agreed, and I asked him to explain what the crime scene said about the killer. Very disorganized in nature. Uh, it would give the impression that the offender did not come there to commit murder. Uh, I would suggest that probably homicide was uh, second to maybe uh, there was no forced entry, so the primary crime would likely would not have appeared to be burglary. It could have been as much as a social visit, which turned bad. Uh, for whatever reasons. Um, 
and thus the offender was not prepared, for example, with weapons, uh, ligatures, restraints of any kind, so he uh, uh, used what was available, weapons of opportunity. So I pressed retired profiler Tom Davis to offer a little bit more. Retired, but still very busy with politics in the sleepy barrier island town of Melbourne Beach. Davis was eager to offer his opinions when I called him to ask if he'd be able to come in and look at some of the documents in this case. He spent about a week looking at autopsy reports, interviews, and court papers before making the half-hour drive from Melbourne Beach to our Florida Today offices to chat with me. We both agreed that his analysis might be a bit skewed since he has knowledge of the case and who was ultimately sent to prison. Still, we thought it was worth the effort to have him go over some of the paperwork just to see what he thought. What does the sheet over the face or over the body oh, indicate to you? That that could be a couple things. One, it could be uh, more, uh, probably most often, it's it shows some remorse, uh, distancing, getting away from what the offender realizes it was done at that point. Um, it also can be indicative of uh, having feelings for the person. Uh, not wanting him to leave him naked, uh, not like an offender that's a, a true uh, rapist uh, who goes out and uh, rape homicide and displays the bodies uh, in, in a uh, very compromising way. So this is indicative of, indicative of undoing and or some concern. It could be as little as a friendship. It could be... Um, We've had cases where a spouse on the spouse, a husband kills a wife, and one of the red flags uh, that you can see a lot of times is just the breast and the genitalia will be covered uh, very neatly uh, to preserve that dignity, as mm. crazy as that sounds, from a killer. Uh, so I, those are the two options, John. Crime scene experts on the scene began looking for clues. They found a few pubic hairs on Mary's body that were not hers. They also found some fingerprints and palm prints. Kermit's fingerprints, as expected, were in the house, and so were Mary's and a few others whom the police ruled out. But there were also more than 10 prints that police were never able to identify. But there was one that they could. It was a partial palm print on a closet door that slid open into Helen's bedroom area. That print belonged to a neighbor. Remember Gary Bennett, the neighbor whose family called him Pee-wee, whose stepmom sent him over to the crime scene to find out what had happened? It was his print. And lead investigator Leroy Dunning thought it odd that Gary's print should be in the dead woman's trailer. He wanted to know why. The thing of it is, is this. Okay, now, I'm not saying it's not my print. I've never said that. Yeah. But... First, the print was found in the living room. Then it went to the kitchen. Then it went to the bathroom. Then it went to the bedroom. Leroy Dunning couldn't make up his mind where the damn print was found. I got no idea where it was found. Right. But I was in the home. She, Helen showed me the trailer. It was a little ass trailer. Helen showed me the trailer. I've never said that it wasn't. He just said, when were you last in the bedroom? Hell, I don't remember. So, remember my experiment earlier? Can you remember everything you touched? Keep that palm print in mind. That's going to be real important. 
Those who are sure the murderer sits in prison say it helped them get the right person. Those who disagree, well. And now let's get back to the the palm print, because that's like the only physical evidence. That I, know, they I know that. Right now. So I know that. It's, it's a little troubling. I and know. I mean, I know that we touch stuff when we go into people's houses and stuff in our prison. As I said, I could have came up with 50 different lies, and I didn't. On how the print got there. Exactly. And I didn't. Coming next time, the police investigation takes a sudden turn and the noose begins to tighten around one suspect. They said, do you want to prove your innocence? I said, how? They said, will you take a rape kit test? I said, what the hell are we doing standing here? Let's go. I want to prove that I got nothing to do with it. That's all for now. Be sure to click subscribe in the iTunes or Google Play store or follow in the Stitcher radio app so that you never miss an episode. I'm news columnist John A. Torres. You can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on the case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Thanks again for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Murder on the Space Coast is written and reported by John A. Torres. The editor is Mara Bellaby. The producer is Rob Landers.